Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the aftermath of Orlando and Richard, the whole country kind of shaken over the last couple of days because we had this horrific – Mass shooting that occurred in Orlando last weekend, a gunman killing 49 and injuring 53, worst mass shooting in American history. Um, before you and I get into some of the policy arguments that that's engendered, why don't we just start here? I mean this attack doesn't occur in a vacuum. It comes after Paris, after San Bernardino. It also, of course, evokes a couple of other mass shootings that weren't related to Islamic terrorism. If you look at places like Charleston or Newtown, what these things all have in common – is that they are what are called soft targets, places without big symbolic value or big strategic significance. And Richard, to start, let's just ask this question. In a free society, how much can we expect that we'll ever be able to adequately protect places like that? Well, it's extremely difficult because it's not only guns that you have to worry about, but there are all sorts of other soft targets that you have, electrical grids, water power plants, uh, cutting main lines and streets and so forth. Unless you have a garrison mentality on each and every issue, I think what you have to assume is that in any large society, which America qualifies as, there's going to always be this low-level background rumble, which will occasionally erupt into catastrophic events. Um, if you were to think of this as having a situation in which there were 99.99% guarantees in all of these in all of these places and then you ask yourself if you have 100,000 events each day is that going to give you a terrorist event on a day it could um it just you need an extremely high rate of safety in order to deal with the very large number of possible culprits that are going to be created i just don't think that you can ever get to that level i mean i i think what one has to do is to not accept and certainly not accept graciously but to understand that uh, even if you had the best optimal strategy, you're going to get yourself into some difficulty. If you don't have the best strategy, uh, then you will compound things mightily. So I think the first thing that one wants to say is getting it right as to what you're supposed to target. Using your scarce resources effectively is essentially the first order of business. It will make a huge difference. What happened over the weekend? Donald Trump used this as an occasion to reassert his call for a, a, what he calls a temporary ban on Muslim immigration to the U.S. Now, of course, the shooter in this case was a Muslim, proclaimed his allegiance to ISIS, but he was also an American citizen. He was born to parents who immigrated from Afghanistan. And Trump also now has used a more narrowly constructed argument about cutting off immigration from countries that have what he calls a proven history of terrorism. So, two questions for you from that. One. What role, if any, should immigration reform play in counterterrorism? And two, what kind of legal constraints would Trump face in trying to enact the sort of immigration policies he's talking about? Well, on the first point, um, the question of what kinds of things do we want to do, uh, you really have to worry about two kinds of errors, keeping out people who ought to uh, be allowed in and letting in people who ought to be kept out. And when it turns out that you have a large number of potential citizens who go overseas, as this fellow did, uh, talk to folks in Saudi Arabia, get the propaganda and so forth, keeping out all sorts of people trying to basically secure asylum from places which are um, under siege is, is not a particularly generous or kind thing to 
to do, and it's not at all clear that it's going to be the slightest bit affected. Trying to run background checks is perhaps something else that you can do, uh, but even there, you'll be very lucky if you can pick up a very small fraction of the folks that are going on. So I, I think that changes in that direction might be appropriate, but certainly nothing of the sort that Trump has suggested, and I don't think there's any reputable leader on either side of the political aisle who supports him on that. In terms of what's going on with respect to the constitutional issues, I, I think the position that we've taken for a very long time in this country is that when it comes to immigration, uh, there are no constitutional rights that one has to worry about on the part of people seeking to enter into this country. And so generally speaking, our, our immigration laws have been characterized by a woeful lack of due process, a high degree of caprice, lots of arbitrariness on all sorts of areas. And so I think in effect that to try to stop this constitutionally, if it is enacted, is not going to happen. Um, but Trump in many cases is much more unilateral than all of this, and he's not thinking about enactments. He's thinking about executive decrees of one kind or another. And on this issue, I think it's what's source for the goose is source for the gander. Um, I'm strongly opposed to President Obama's effort to unilaterally reform the immigration laws by executive decrees. And even when I have some sympathy with the uh, substantive agenda that he's promoting there, in this particular case, no sympathy on the substance and certainly no willingness to give this guy the benefit of the dial on executive power. The next question one has to ask about immigration reform is whether there are any constitutional impediments on the way in which it is carried out. And the answer to that question is pretty much no if there is legislation on that point. What we tend to do in the United States is to regard immigration as a free fire zone. Aliens receive no kinds of protections and we can pretty much do whatever we want one way or another in letting people in or keeping people out of the country. Uh, so that what happens is if the president can get the Congress behind him, he can pretty much do what he pleases. Uh, but when you're dealing with Trump, unilateralism is always a very serious option. And he may try to do this through executive order. I was strongly opposed to what Obama tried to do through executive order on immigration. And I think what's source for the goose is source for the gander. And that one should fiercely oppose any kind of unilateralism by a President Trump should he be elected on this particular score. Uh, so it's a kind of a divided picture. By legislation, you can do more or less what you want, but by executive order, I think your options are very limited. And if Congress should decide to intervene and override the president, that would surely end the thing as a matter of sort of the structural constitution of the United States. Another conversation that's come up here and one that you would expect in the aftermath of something like this has been gun control. There's a big push, especially on the left on Capitol Hill and actually one that Donald Trump seems to be getting on board with as well to prevent people who are on the the no-fly list or the terrorist watch list. He actually floated both of those in his tweet on this subject and by the way, those are two different things that often get conflated. But to prevent those people from being able to purchase a gun. What's your reaction to that proposal, Richard? Um, well, I think it's basically bad on one score and probably futile on the other. Well, one of the problems that we've had is that the no-fly list and all these other lists are subject to very serious counterattacks because they represent serious limitations on persons' ordinary civil liberties to travel, and yet you could be put on these lists for good reasons or for bad reason or for no reason at all, and it takes a devil of a time to get yourself off of these kinds of lists, and oftentimes 
sometimes there's no formal process that allows you to attack it. So there are a lot of due process considerations in this area, which I think make the whole process very, very dubious. Now, the second problem I think that one has to worry about in these cases is just simply the effectiveness of this situation. One of the things that we know about guns is that they're easily portable. And to the extent that you put a prohibition on sale, uh, that means that people who want to get guns to kill people will do so in a secondary market where there's an ample kind of supply. Uh, So trying to stop this flow of guns in and out by uh, stopping the sale of new guns when it turns out there are 325 million guns rather out there in the United States today, roughly speaking, strikes me as an essay in futility. Um, If I thought gun control would work, I would certainly be in favor of it, even if it meant a compromise on civil liberties. Um, I'm not making a Second Amendment argument here at all. I'm making a very different kind of argument. I just don't see the evidence. Uh, Under Clinton, uh, one banned assault weapons, which are kind of military get-ups of repeating guns of one kind or another, and it did virtually no good in terms of the overall gun rate. Uh, The good news is, of course, is that gun killings are down by 50% over the last 20 years. The bad news is that they're higher than they are everywhere else. So another argument, Richard, that spilled out over this is this long-standing debate over the rhetorical side of, I guess you call it the war on terror, although that locution itself is sort of out of fashion. But Donald Trump is very critical of President Obama's refusal to use the phrase radical Islam or, or some variation thereof. The president and Hillary Clinton uh, both said this week some variation of it doesn't matter how you label it. It matters what you do about it. So Richard, to what extent is this a meaningful issue? How politicians treat this threat rhetorically? Well, I think it's a very important issue because I think rhetoric matters a great deal when you're trying to deal with politics. If you describe the incident that happened here as being homegrown as the president did, then you're naturally going to incline yourself to thinking that what you have to do is to redouble efforts within the domestic frontier um, and try and stomp things out through gun control or similar devices. If you say that this was a case of incitement by ISIS, which is in fact a criminal act under American law, uh, then what you have to do is you have to go after those guys in order to quiet them down. And I think one of the problems, of course, with this whole situation is that we announced our war on ISIS back in, I think it was September of 2014. Uh, It's only an air war. It's been moderately effective, but not wholly effective. These guys can taunt us. They can gloat about it. Uh, We do not want to use any kind of serious coercive behaviors against them on the ground in either Iraq or in Syria. And so I think what happens is a lot of people who are disaffected with the United States see that ISIS ISIS has thumbed its nose at us and they said, well, these are the winning side. We might as well start to join with them rather than staying away. I think in general, the president's policies on these overseas issues has been deplorable. There are millions of people who have been dislocated on the one hand and there have been hundreds of thousands of people who have been killed and what we do is we see this sort of massive, lofty, Obama-like indifference with respect to genuine levels of human suffering. So if you take the rhetoric and put it in the opposite direction, it means that you're reducing double your efforts in the Middle East to shut down the heart of this particular enterprise, hoping that they'll make fewer converts uh, along the way. Uh, But the air power and the financial stuff, although certainly a contributor in this situation, are not a substitute for a ground war. But uh, Obama's commander-in-chief, and unfortunately he thinks he knows more about military affairs than everybody else in the world put together, so he doesn't take any advice. My view is not to prescribe what the military ought to do in this situation, but it's to plead for a president to actually take some 
advice from people who know what the uses and limitations of force are in a way that he does not. David Petraeus is the obvious example, but of course he's now out of the picture having been cashiered uh, by the president. So my final question to you then, I realize this is a perspective one and maybe at some level unfair, but we know who the two people most likely to become president are come this time next year. How much confidence do you have that either one of them would pursue a course of action here more along the lines of what you're describing? Well, with I don't think that Donald Trump is fit to be president of the United States, which doesn't mean that I have any enthusiasm whatsoever for Hillary Clinton, his major <laughs> rival. Um, and I want to make it very, very clear that the enemy of my enemy is not my friend, and the fact that he's a terrible candidate doesn't make her a good one. On foreign policy, I think there is, however, some degree of daylight between her and Obama. Uh, the military people whom I have spoken to generally regard her as being a little bit more responsive to what they have to say and a little bit more hawkish and a little bit less uh, willing to make these doctrinaire statements that we won't use ground forces or commit them anyway. So I think in effect on that level she might well be an improvement. But on the domestic front, to the extent that she's going to push what I regard as a futile effort in gun control, instead of trying to figure out some other kind of rational strategy, I just don't have a huge amount of confidence. More to the point, I don't think I have any confidence in the kinds of people she's likely to look to as she starts to run her presidential campaign. I doubt very much that Elizabeth Warren um, will be her running mate, but it's certainly a woman who will have extraordinary influence on Mrs. O- Mrs. Clinton, and I frankly don't think she's much of a legislature or a particularly strong academic. Uh, so as I kind of look around, I feel somewhat desolate about this situation. I think that after the surge, things have gone downhill pretty much for the last eight years. It's a pattern, by the way, that I predict the moment that Obama got into office, uh, the words responsibly withdraw from Iraq seem to me to be an oxymoron of a very deep nature. Uh, once you're in there, you have so many commitments. Either you stay the course or you're going to get yourself walloped as you try to get out. And what the president is is a master of doing the following thing. Uh, you put yourself in just enough so that you could get hurt but not enough so that you could do anything good. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.